Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 293, The Beacons Are Lit. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Linda, Bernadette, and David for signing up already. When we left off, Athelstan had recently died. Olaf had returned from Dublin and been crowned as King of Jorvik, which meant that the Kingdom of Jorvik was now back. The English Ferd was still recovering from the bloodbath of Brunanburh, and the English Navy were currently sailing up and down the French coast shouting Liberté, Fraternité, Piracé. It was looking bad, and for the 18-year-old King Edmund, the political problems were only the tip of the iceberg. There were also the personal struggles. The preceding few years had resulted in all of his foster brothers leaving court, which wouldn't have been so bad were it not for the fact that Athelstan had recently died. And so now the young king was without a father figure and a mentor, and all that remained of his childhood court was Edmund's 16-year-old brother, Adred. Much like Alfred, Edmund was coming into his reign under a cloud of tragedy and abandonment. 939 was a tough year, but new years bring new opportunities, new goals, a new chance. So as the calendar flipped over to 940, I wonder if Edmund was looking to turn a new corner. And there were positive signs there. As winter arrived, the campaigning season had fully closed. The disobedient, plundering fleet would have returned home by now. Harvest season would have come to an end. And that meant that nobles now had the time necessary to train new recruits and finally replenish the badly defeated Ferd. Edmund also had plenty of political connections across the channel, thanks to Athelstan's efforts. So maybe, like his brother, he could start to form new alliances and strengthen his position, perhaps so much so that he could retake Northumbria and maybe even return England to its imperial status. He also still had his foster brothers in France, Brittany, and Scandinavia, and perhaps they could support him and help him in his efforts. There were plenty of reasons for the young king to be hopeful. Furthermore, despite the setbacks of 939, England was still a powerful force in the Western world, both militarily and economically. They still had their trade economy. The ports were still in operation. The Burgal defensive network was still in place. England had a lot going for it. And beyond the network of burrs, Edmund also had something at his disposal that was quite literally awesome. And it's something that I don't think I've mentioned in the show yet, but it's been operating in the background for probably about the last 50 to 100 years. And it's something that very likely contributed to the rapid decline in the reported raids in the English territories. Edmund had the beacons of Minas Tirith. Well, he had the things that inspired the Beacons of Minas Tirith. For those of you who didn't read the books and may have only just seen The Lord of the Rings, do you remember that scene where there were giant fires being lit from mountaintop to mountaintop as Gondor called for the help of their neighboring kingdom of Rohan? Well, that wasn't just from the imagination of Tolkien. That was a real form of tactical communication that Wessex had been using during the Viking era. In fact, we see references in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to the beacons being lit in times of conflict. Now, frustratingly, the Chronicle doesn't tell us where these signal towers were. 
They don't say, oh yeah, and in 852, we also put a big old beacon on the hill near London. But luckily, we do have other ways to determine where these beacons might have been. And one of the ways is when there's a town or a hill or a village that has either weird or tote in its name. Those are the old English words for watching or guarding. And predictably, we find names like that all over the South. Now, if you're one of the rare people in the world who's actually already familiar with the Anglo-Saxon beacon system, chances are that you've heard about that network that ran along the southern coast. That's the section of beacons that tends to get what little attention there is on this subject. However, the reality is that place name evidence shows that beacons were far more than simply a sea-focused defensive structure. And we see signs of these beacons all along the border of the Dane Law as well. This appears to have been a critical and extensive system for the defensive strategy of Wessex, and later, of England. You can actually see some of this yourself. Pull up a map of the English portion of modern-day Britain, and notice how many towns you see with the name elements in them. Tottenham, Totterdown, Totnes, they're all over the place. And that's one way that historians have managed to trace where these beacons might have been. They also try and reconstruct these sites by looking at the landscape. They look for hills and other elevated positions, which are high enough relative to the rest of the area, that a fire could be visible for kilometers. And these would be good spots for watchmen to be able to see approaching dangers, or be able to spot other lit beacons. Similarly, they look for sites that are close to major roads, or waterways, or other routes that would have been useful for watchposts, as these areas would allow watchmen to better keep an eye on the movement in and out of their territory. Another way scholars determine where a site might have been is by working out whether or not it could be viewed by other known or suspected watchtowers. Now, there's a lot of math that goes into this, and I won't bore you with it, but what they've determined is that if you set up two 10-meter tall towers, and they don't have any obstructions or elevated points in between them, a fire could potentially be seen by another station until you reach a distance of about 40 kilometers. After that, the curvature of the Earth begins to obstruct the view, and you also deal with issues like, you know, can you really see a light that far away? So scholars took that basic information and then they compared it against suggested beacon sites and tried to work out if they are in range of other watch stations. Then they'd use those new locations to spot where yet other locations might be. And these action nerds even went so far as to traipse out to these alleged sites with signal flares and then wave them at each other, which honestly sounds like one of the funnest jobs in the world. And eventually they determined that even in the middle of a clear summer's day, signal flares could be seen between some of the known signal sites. And that's in the middle of the day. But here's where it gets really cool. As they looked where the watchtowers likely were, they realized that the Anglo-Saxons were being particularly clever with where they were placing these sites. They weren't just using the hills and the natural landscape to give them a leg up. They were also using previous construction to their advantage. See, back in the Bronze and Iron Ages, many high-status individuals had a habit of building their barrows, their burial mounds, on high ground. And the idea is pretty clear here, right? They wanted lands where, even in death, they could overlook the territory where they had once held power. Well, through the construction of these barrows, they added to the height of the hills that they were built upon, and that made them quite useful to the Anglo-Saxons. Because by using these sites they wouldn't need to build their towers as high. And thus, a thousand years later, 
we see the Anglo-Saxons building their beacons, which they used to summon their armies of war, upon the graves of long-dead British warlords, which is about the most metal thing I've ever heard. So all along the English border and the English coastline, you had people stationed in towers that were sitting atop hills full of the ancient dead, and they were keeping an eye out for any sign of trouble, ready to light a beacon at a moment's notice. And this system was so effective that it eventually surfaced outside of Britain. In the saga of Hakon the Good, one of Athelstan's fosterlings, we're told that Hakon made a number of reforms to Scandinavian life after he returned north. And among those reforms was the institution of a beacon system, a tactic that he would have learned while he was living in the court of Athelstan. This system also lasted long after the height of the Viking Age. In fact, the Anglo-Saxon watchpoints and beacons in Kent and Sussex later became the basis of Queen Elizabeth's coastal defensive system. And the way the beacons actually worked is pretty much exactly how you'd imagine it. In times of distress, signal fires would be lit to notify other signal stations, and then they would be lit and so on and so forth. Pretty much exactly like Lord of the Rings. So while in a political sense, King Edmund had inherited a total dumpster fire, the fact is that the bones of the kingdom were still pretty good. It was well situated. England just needed to be put back on track. Those beacons, for example, were excellent infrastructure, but they'd only be effective if there were people manning them, and if there were plenty of nearby firds ready to be called up. And right now, Edmund didn't have that. So as 940 dawned, King Edmund was probably desperately trying to rebuild his human infrastructure, to restock his physical infrastructure. Meanwhile, to the north, King Olaf was hard at work as well. He'd recently regained the lost lands of Jorvik, and that was a good start. But there were still plenty of his subjects currently living under English rule. The Dane law was far more than simply Jorvik. There was also the five boroughs in East Anglia. The English had stolen those lands from his predecessors only about 20 years ago. Those lands needed to be retaken. And now was a good time to press his advantage. Because King Olaf had something that King Edmund didn't. He had an army, and because the nobility of Jorvik welcomed him without a fight, his army was still fresh and ready for war. In fact, he even had the support of the God of the West Saxons, because Bishop Wolfstan had pledged to support his claims. And so, with Archbishop Wolfstan at his side, along with whatever supporting forces he gained from the Archbishopric and the newly reestablished Kingdom of Jorvik, King Olaf mustered his forces and marched south into the five boroughs. He was going to retake his lost lands. But there was one minor sticking point to this plan. 20 years is a long time. For the five boroughs, an entire generation had passed under English rule, and the monarchs who had been ruling over them were active warlike leaders. Edward, Athelflaed, Athelstan, they'd all followed in the footsteps of Alfred, and so I'm confident that the defensive structures in the Midlands were bolstered and brought in line with the rest of Fortress Wessex. So that means that as Olaf, Wolfstan, and their forces followed the ancient route south into the Midlands, there were likely sentries stationed on the hills and barrows and towers all along the border who were watching this with a growing sense of dread. And then they did the only thing they could do. They lit the beacons 
and rode as quick as possible to their local lord to tell them that they needed to prepare their defenses. But what defenses? It was only three years since the Pyrrhic victory of Brunanburh. The Ferd was still so terribly depleted that Edmund had abandoned Northumbria without even putting up a fight. And with this advance south, it was clear that Olaf wasn't stopping there. And that was the genius of Olaf's attack. He had begun his attack so quickly and advanced so relentlessly that the English didn't have a chance to respond. But even if they had realized what was going on, I don't think it would have mattered all that much because they were still rebuilding their army. And these factors put the lords of the Midlands in a brutal situation. Could they really be expected to hold all of this off alone? Olaf was bearing down upon them with the same army that took Northumbria, and it was now even larger thanks to Archbishop Wolfstan's forces and unknown numbers of people from Jorvik and the surrounding area. I mean, maybe the lords could hold off a siege for a time, but that would only matter if reinforcements were coming. And that was no guarantee at all. And all of this might have been a real problem for the people living in the five boroughs. Because while this region was originally part of the Dane law, that didn't mean that the people living there now would have identified with Olaf, nor did it mean that they would have welcomed his arrival. First of all, Olaf and his followers were Norse, not Danes. And this distinction might be throwing you a little bit. Due to the nature of the record from this era, and due to the way that the Anglo-Saxons wrote about the Scandinavians using terms interchangeably for them, it's easy to lump all Scandinavians together into one big cultural group. But the people who came over with Halfdan weren't the same people who ruled over Dublin. Olaf and his Dubliners are generally referred to as Norse, and culturally they would have been distinct from the Danes who had settled in Jorvik in the Midlands. Furthermore, even if they started out under the same cultural group, several decades living under the English umbrella could lead to significant cultural divergence. And that appears to have happened in the five boroughs. After all of these years, the Danes of the five boroughs now identified closer with the English than they did with the Norse of Dublin. So Olaf wasn't a liberator. He was an invader. Which meant that the lords of the five boroughs were now in a difficult situation. And they had to ask themselves, do we fight to stay under the system that we know and trust, and potentially carry out that fight entirely alone? Or do we accept this foreign conqueror and just hope that things will work out? Every lord suddenly had a choice to make. And the consequences of that decision was literally life and death for many of their subjects. And a few lords did resist. But I have to point this out again, to fight against such a catastrophic force would only matter if reinforcements were coming from the south. And in the south, in the court of King Edmund, word of the beacons would probably have come first. But soon after would have come the messengers carrying first-hand accounts of what was happening in the northern territories. And the reports would have been harrowing. Olaf and Archbishop Wolstan raided all they saw. Houses were being burned. Fields were being scorched. Livestock was taken. In all likelihood, many of the inhabitants were either captured or enslaved. Olaf was doing what he was best at. And Archbishop Wolfstan was helping. And raiding might seem counterproductive to you, considering that Olaf wanted to recapture the very lands that he was now plundering. But proving himself to be a powerful and dangerous force on the island while simultaneously establishing that the English king couldn't protect the people of the Midlands, would have had its own propagandic effect. 
So through Lincolnshire, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, through it all, they raided. They moved quickly and acted savagely. And their aggressive tactics seemed to have worked, because from the tone and context of the record, it appears that the boroughs started to come under their control. So now King Edmund was scrambling. He knew he needed to respond. He knew he was losing lands, and more importantly, he was losing the confidence of his nobility. But he still needed men. Had Olaf not moved so quickly, the situation would have been very different. But this was a lightning strike. Edmund had barely sat on the throne when the attacks began. And while he likely knew his nobles needed him, until the issue of manpower was solved, there was nothing he could do but listen to the reports and prepare. So Olaf's army continued to advance south, deep into English territory. And it seemed that nothing could stop them. That is, until they reached Northampton. As the Norse army approached, the Burr of Northampton barred its gates, manned the walls, and prepared for war. And then for some reason, something changed. Something was different. Simeon of Durham doesn't tell us what happened. He doesn't tell us what made Northampton special. But sitting in their siege camp, King Olaf and Archbishop Wolfstan did something that they'd never done before. They broke camp and retreated. Something about the tactical situation of Northampton convinced the Vikinger king that he couldn't prevail. But that didn't mean that he was done. Perhaps he didn't have the ability to take a town that close to the West Saxon border, but there were still other towns that might not present as much resistance. And behind him, in the Midlands, lay many towns just like that. Towns that, thanks to their ravaging, would have had few allies to be able to be called upon. Isolated towns. And so Olaf and Wolfstan gathered their forces, and they fell upon the old Mercian capital of Tamworth like a plague. Now Tamworth, like Northampton, was a burr. It was fortified since at least the days of Queen Athelflaed, and so they weren't without defenses. But those defenses only served the people who were within the walls. The surrounding countryside was a different matter. And seeing this, Olaf and Wolfstan took advantage of the countryside's vulnerability. They ravaged all around Tamworth, thus filling their supply train while simultaneously denying their enemies any hope of nourishment. And those inside Tamworth could do little more than watch as they did so. The message here was clear. Resistance to Olaf's rule would be met with swift and terrible vengeance. If you wanted to live, if you even wanted to eat, you better get on board with the new order. And I imagine that Olaf must have been sitting smugly in his siege camp, waiting for the inevitable surrender of Tamworth. All of this had been a fitting response to Brunenburg. Only a few years earlier, Olaf had personally lost large numbers of his own soldiers and had nearly lost his life to Athelstan. But now Athelstan was dead, and England was broken, and Olaf was on the verge of taking possession of Athelstan's hometown. And who was going to stop him? Edmund? Hardly. The young boy didn't seem to have the same degree of resolve that his older brother did. This new king was a lamb. Except Edmund wasn't a weak ruler. He was just trying to gather a force large enough to handle this threat. And with the near loss of Northampton and the impending collapse at Tamworth, it was clear that he couldn't wait any longer. 
So the king gathered what was left of his fyrd, along with Archbishop Odo of Canterbury and any of his forces, and he marched. Now, Olaf didn't have a network of messaging towers to notify him of approaching forces, but he was an experienced war leader, and he certainly had scouts roaming the countryside looking for oncoming forces. So shortly before Edmund could arrive at Tamworth, Olaf and Wolfstan broke camp and retreated to Leicester with the English army in close pursuit. And unlike Northampton, Leicester had submitted to Olaf, which meant that as the Norse army approached, the gates opened, and once they were inside, they slammed back shut. When Edmund and his army arrived at Leicester, it was clear that the only way forward would be a siege. And can you imagine the disappointment that Edmund must have felt? He had spent God knows how long waiting for his fur to be mustered. And now that it was fully in the field, he wasn't facing a fight against Olaf. He was just facing a siege. A long siege where he would just waste time and men. But that was the hand he was dealt. So, while Olaf and Archbishop Wolfstan milled about inside the walls of Leicester, Edmund and Archbishop Odo prepared the siege lines. They set their watches, and they went to their camps for the night. Then, at some point in the dead of night, suddenly came the sounds of chaos. Sounds of metal meeting metal. Sounds of men screaming. Sounds that likely reminded Edmund of that fateful night at Brunanburh, where Olaf's forces nearly killed Athelstan in a night raid. They'd done it again. As the English army had settled in for the night watch, Somehow, the forces of Olaf and Wolfstan quietly slipped out the gates, arrayed their forces, and charged headlong through the English lines, breaking through them and surging out of their control. And as dawn broke, two things were abundantly clear. The first was that Olaf had an enormous army, one that likely matched or perhaps even outnumbered Edmunds. And the second was that Olaf and his men weren't fleeing north. They were standing their ground outside of Leicester and preparing to meet the English in battle. And while Edmund had replenished the Ferd, in doing so, he had to conscript and train new recruits, which meant that his forces were likely less experienced than the veteran warriors that had been rampaging through the Midlands alongside Olaf. Open battle against this army was a risky prospect. And so Archbishop Odo of Canterbury rode out to meet with Archbishop Wolfstan of Jorvik and see if some kind of arrangement could be struck. Simeon doesn't give us the details of the negotiations. He doesn't tell us who made an offer first. He doesn't tell us what the various offers were. But given the relatively weak position that Edmund was in, my suspicion is that the negotiations were rather short, and they certainly were particularly humiliating for the young king. Because in exchange for peace, King Olaf was granted all the land between Watling Street and the Northumbrian border, which meant that the five boroughs went over to him. Through a single treaty, King Edmund had allowed the Dane law to be reestablished, and his borders to be pushed back to where they had been back in the days of his grandfather. The gains made by Edward, Athelflaed, and Athelstan had all been erased in the course of a few months. It was a crushing defeat for the young monarch. But for as bad as it may have been for him, it was even worse for the people living in the retaken territory. In the about two decades of English rule, the population of the five boroughs, even those who were originally Scandinavian settlers or descendants of Scandinavian settlers, had adopted English ways. 
and following this treaty, they suddenly came under the dominion of Olaf and the Vikinger aristocrats that he placed in power. And looking at the record, the locals, even the local Danes, don't appear to have appreciated that change. And in response, as Edmund and his forces retreated to Wessex, Olaf and his men clamped down on the population forcefully. The dream of England was dying. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on pretty much every social media platform out there, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.